Welcome to the Monkey Mind Podcast, your number one platform for athletes and mental health. Hosted by myself, Danny Perez. What's going on, everybody? As always, I'm your host, Danny Perez, and welcome back to the Monkey Mind Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, we'll have a quick word from our sponsor, but also be sure to follow us on our Instagram, at monkeymindathletes. You can also watch this episode on our YouTube channel, which I'll put in the notes below this episode. And also be sure to head over to our website, monkeymindathletes.com. On there, you'll be able to find our team of mental performance coaches, nutritional therapists, and strength and conditioning coaches. From there, you can sign up for a free consultation and learn more about how they can help you become a high performer and your best self. Again, that's monkeymindathletes.com, and check out our menu bar on the top of the page to see our team of specialists and how they're ready to help you today. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Daily Dose CBD, Inc. Daily Dose CBD, Inc. creates full-spectrum CBD products ranging from tinctures, bombs, and dog treats. Research has shown that CBD has successful results in aiding in the following areas. Anti-inflammation, anxiety, PTSD, help with breaking addiction, neuroprotection, epilepsy, arthritis, chronic pain, and sleeping disorders. Daily Dose makes an extremely safe and effective product that we know you will love, enjoy, and benefit from. Daily Dose has given Monkey Mind listeners 15% off all their orders. Head over to DailyDoseCBDInc.com and use promo code MONKEYMIND15 for 15% off your purchases. That's promo code MONKEYMIND15 for 15% off all your orders at DailyDoseCBDInc.com. All right, we had Gabe Zellico on today. He's a hockey goaltender playing for Cal State Fullerton ACHA Division II. A master's candidate in sports and performance psychology at Cal State University Fullerton, and was featured on NHL Network this year to discuss his game against UCLA, where he faced 100 shots, stopping 91 of them. And Gabe, you have a uh, an interesting story with your hand as well. Um, I want to give an introduction on it, but I I don't know if I'd do it justice. So I'd rather uh, you know hand it over to you and and you go into your story and talk about. Uh, talk about that but yeah just uh welcome on i'm super excited to have you on this podcast and get this going yeah thank you so much i love this podcast it basically embodies my two biggest passions which are hockey and like mental health and psychology so once my buddy zach showed me this podcast i was all into it but um yeah so i've been playing for like 20 years um mainly goalie i do skate out too and love it but i can't get enough of goalie too um yeah finishing up my master's program right now at cal state fullerton and with my hand, I was just born with a, a birth defect. So I'm kind of showing out in video, but for the people listening, uh, you can imagine taking your middle ring and pinky finger and just kind of throwing those out and then cutting in half the length of your index finger and your thumb. And that's kind of what I'm working with on my right hand. So it's basically just a little bit of pinching. And it's a condition called sembrachidactyly. It affects about one in 30,000 people. There isn't a really known cause. Uh, people say it's like a lack of blood flow, but it's not really from like the pa- the mom doing drugs or something. It's just kind of random. And uh, yeah, so my parents, you can imagine, were not thrilled when they heard I wanted to start playing hockey because they're like, how is he going to do this? Because I can't really grasp anything. I said, like I said, I can pinch and the stick is too big to pinch. So I saw some specialists and the first kind of solution we got into was velcroing my glove so i'm a lefty so with my right hand being affected my right hand is at the top of my stick 
And so in the beginning, we just had that glove Velcro. It's just so if my hand did come out of the glove, um, the glove would at least stay there and I wouldn't have to like pick it up off the rink. But I quickly disliked that. Didn't love that kind of lack of freedom that I had because I couldn't move the glove at all on my uh, stick that I was using to skate out with. And then, and then I wanted to play goalie. So then my parents are like, okay, this is going to be even more complicated because the gloves are so much bigger. The stick is even bigger. And yeah, so we went to the same guy who had, who was helping me with skating out and his idea for how I could play goalie with a hand like this was basically just Velcroing the blocker where that stick should be. So in like that classic um, position where the paddle meets the shaft. So just Velcroing it up basically parallel with the stick, which is important because that means I, it was a lot more rigid and I couldn't move the blocker in certain ways to stop like low blocker shots. I couldn't mm. rotate the blocker because it was so strapped in tight to that stick because we needed to make sure it was like one piece that I could just reach my hand into and pinch what was like the glove dividers. And that's mm -hmm. how I was holding the blocker and the stick. And that's how I played for about eight years. So eight years I was playing with my, my glove hand on my good hand, And then my blocker and stick was on my, my small hand. And like I said, it, I think it worked out fine. I wasn't playing anywhere crazy. Like I did one year of travel and this was roller, but I was generally pretty good, which was really fun. And, um, I eventually got to wanting to play college and I was at the end of high school and I was like, I want to play for a college club team. That just looks like a very realistic goal that I can meet. And that would be so much fun to be able to experience like those crowds, that kind of league. I, I, I haven't had, I had not had a coach in 10 years when I came to Fullerton. So I was really excited to kind of get back into that swing of things, but Going into college, I knew that I had a severe disadvantage with my hands and that I was already kind of getting exposed on this weak blocker side. And I didn't really know what to do. I feel like there was something that I could have done. So I just reached out to this big uh, goalie page on Facebook. And I just asked, does anybody know of a goalie that plays with a hand like this? And somebody mentioned Joe Rogers, who played for Notre Dame. And he had a hand literally identical to mine. It's, it's, it had to be the same condition. And it was on the same side too. So it was also his right hand. And you would not believe my reaction when I looked up Joe Rogers and I saw that he had his trapper, his glove hand on that hand. And I, it would, had never occurred to me to, to switch hands and have the glove hand on my, my bad hand. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw this, I was just, uh, I was floored. I was like, could I do that? I wonder, I mean, I've already been, been playing like this for about eight years. Uh, do I need to get a custom glove? So I actually reached out to Joe. He had worked with Vaughn and set me up with them. So I was working with Vaughn and then they made me a glove and chest pad to compensate for my hand. And um, basically I started to play full right after I had been playing goalie for almost a decade. And let me tell you, Danny, I hated it so much off the bat because really? like one, obviously I couldn't catch anything because I can't squeeze the glove. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of have to hope it cradles in the glove. And then two, like, imagine playing hockey i mean imagine are you a lefty or a righty i'm a lefty yeah okay so just imagine like a decade in and being like all right so now you're gonna switch you're gonna switch hands and yeah no that's all the stuff happening. that yeah all the stuff <laughs> you think is simple it's you have to relearn and i was getting super frustrated with it and i actually switched back to my old way after like a month and so i i spent all this time figuring out how to play full right and adjust to that and then I just said, screw it. I, I had this great idea of just switching back because that's what I was already good at and mm -hmm. grew up playing and I, and I loved it. 
going back to it because I actually had a, a good glove hand again. But uh, I, I went to my undergrad at Long Beach and I was practicing with their team quite a bit. And at one of the practices, we were doing a one-timer drill and I was still, so I was back to my old way. I was playing um, with that Velcro system of my blocker and stick. And one of the shots that this coach took on me blew up a buckle on my blocker. Like it exploded. Oh, there was no okay. fixing. And it wouldn't be as big of a deal if the guy who had made this blocker and stick was out of the business now. So I couldn't really go back to him to be like, Hey, I, it broke. Can you make me another one? He, he mm -hmm. didn't have the means for that. He set me up with the guy who helped him make the strapping. So it was basically me and that guy, this guy who like makes custom shoes for people. So he yep. had the equipment. So I was like, I'd gone into his office like five times, just kind of trying us trying to figure out how to recreate this. And I'd gotten like two more blockers and we, we tried a lot of different ways, but it just never felt right again. Like that one blocker was. So I just had to suck it up and play full, right. And basically teach myself how I can make this work. And I wasn't going to worry so much about catching pucks as much as I was going to just get my chest in front of the puck and stop it mm -hmm. and rely on my agility to make up for all the rebounds that I might let up because again, catching pucks won't be as easy, but it also allowed for a lot more fun things. Like I could poke check because I couldn't move. My yeah. On yeah, my yeah. So it's, it's stuff as simple as that, Danny, that was so important to me when I switched to full, right. That felt really good because stuff as simple as you're skating out onto warmups as a goalie and you have your blocker at the top of your stick. So that's just kind of how goalies skate with their blocker in their hand. I never had that option when I was playing growing up because my blocker was Velcroed in the same position as my, mm -hmm. on my stick. So once I switched, it kind of felt cool to kind of feel like a real goalie where I can have more of that freedom that every other goalie I have ever met has. So it did come with a lot of uh, struggles and learning, but uh, I always give the advice to my clients, uh, be your, be your own best coach. And I think that's what I had to be to just kind of figure out what, how I was going to make it work essentially. Mm -hmm. No, that's awesome. Uh, I think that's super cool. I'm happy that you got so in depth with that story. Um, I think it's super interesting that you got in touch with Vaughn and found someone that was a goaltender who had the same condition as you and got in touch with Vaughn. And I'm curious what, um, how they specifically like manufactured a glove for you. What, what did that look like or, um, and the chest protector you said, correct? Yeah. So, so the thing what the exactly did they do and how did that, yeah. Mm -hmm. How did they like, make, make that work for you? Yeah. Yeah. Happy to go into that. So the chest protector, essentially they wanted to shorten the length of the arm on the right side because, if okay. it's the normal side, it would be too long and it would be getting in the way of actually putting my hand in the glove. Okay. So they end up doing that, but I actually don't use that chest protector because I hate breaking in new chest protectors. It's just like my hell. And I actually mm -hmm. made, made it work with my other one. So really the customization is on the glove where there's a lot less room for my hand inside the glove because okay. if I was just using a normal uh, trapper, there's so much room inside of there. Even if I put all the straps as tight as possible, because my hand is so small and I can't like curl my fingers to get a grip on the glove, it's going to be loose and it's going to come off every now and then. And so they kind of have like these Velcro spots that I can put extra cloth. There's like three more straps than a normal glove has. So I can make it super tight and all those straps are as tight as they can be. So my hand is super secure in there that's why I, I basically get on the rink and i don't take the glove off until intermissions or the game is over because it's okay. kind of a pain um those are the main those are the main differences um 
Now my hand is a lot farther into this glove um, because that's just kind of how, how far I need to put it in order for it to be snug and comfortable. And this has actually been kind of an issue lately because, because I'm putting my hand farther in where people's hands usually aren't in gloves. Mm -hmm. It's in a spot where there's less protection. And I actually cut my hand open on a shot like a month ago and the shot hit me through my glove, yet my hand was bleeding. So it shows you that my hand is not in the best spot still. So I'm still figuring out how to kind of make this glove situation work. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to see where I can put padding in and stuff like that. But yeah, that's kind of the, the main goal of this custom glove is how can we make it really compact and tighten there? So my hand can feel stable, but, um, unfortunately the glove does come off when a puck hits me in a perfectly perfect angle in my pocket. And there was actually a game where we played against USC this year. And some guy took a one, sh- one timer from the slot, took my glove clean off, went in the net. And I was no. destroyed after that. I felt pretty bad and it's a, oh, it's a rarity, man. but it does happen. And actually a couple weeks ago, and mind you, this never happens, but it happened like twice in the last six months. And uh, just in a men's league game, someone did the same thing where they shot it perfectly at my glove where it took it clean off. But luckily this time, not only did the puck stay in the glove, but the glove didn't go in the net. So I was just okay, like, good. Okay, we're, we're chilling. <laughs> so that's a, good save. that's a good save. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my teammate was like, yeah, I was wondering why your glove just came clean off. And then he looked at my hand and was like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's interesting. Um. Wow, that's that's really cool. So it hit so your glove is still in the works of being situated. And then where exactly did it cut you open that? I'm curious. Yeah. So it's like basically on the lateral side of my hand. Okay. And I think how just how my hand is formed, there's less like tissue padding. So the mm-hmm. bone is maybe closer to the surface of the hand. So gotcha. uh, it was just just kind of got cut a little bit easier. Gotcha. And uh, so you've gained some notoriety, obviously being on NHL network and being able to talk about your story there. So uh, talk about that experience and, and talking about, you know, your story in the NHL network and um, yeah, how that was for you. Oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. Just a dream come true. I, I never thought I'd be there. Um, now my mom has dragged me downstairs all the time to watch like people like me that were being interviewed with, mm-hmm. with a hand like mine, or maybe they're missing a leg and just showing that they're still doing great things. And mm-hmm. uh, I was just excited to get that opportunity to be, to kind of be that guy. And, and I didn't think I would be, but it's a really funny story that I was just warming up in the halls of our rink. And um, like, we were all masked up at the time because of COVID. And I saw there was just some coach in the hallway. I was trying to like look over at him and give him a smile, but obviously with the masks, that's kind of tough. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of got on with my stuff, but I was just warming up in my like shirt and, t- and, and shorts. And I guess he noticed my hand there, but he didn't like tell his team anything and and mind you so we were playing ucla they're they're ranked pretty high they're like top 10 in the nation in our division and we we got a little we got we lost a lot of good players (laughs) over covid so we probably shouldn't have been facing them but um this was my first game of the year so i was just kind of like taking it in stride i had no idea what to expect and i remember 10 minutes in to this game um i saw that the shots they already had 15 shots and i like to kind of calculate what that would be for the game. So that would be like 30 at the end of the first period, which would be 90 for the whole game. And I was just thinking to myself, wow, how long can they keep this up? This is exhausting. I think it was like two yeah. nothing already. And that, that period ended and the shots were like 33. And I was just kind of floored by the amount of shots I'd face in a period. It was, yeah. it was really cool though. Um, and it was like four nothing. So we, we knew we were, we were uh, 
playing catch up. And yeah. then second period was just kind of more the same. It ended six to nothing and they had 70 shots at this point. And this was the most shots I've faced in a game in my life at this point. And I knew I had still a whole period. And we had it. We had good morale in the locker. We knew we were outmatched, but we were just trying to focus on what we were doing well. Like we, we knew we were letting up a lot of shots, but I think we were doing well in letting up just kind of savable shots. Mm-hmm. And we're still, we're having a good time in the locker room. <laughs> my buddy, Zach, who actually introduced me to this podcast, he's like joking. He's like, why do you look so tired? Like you look horrible. And I'm like laughing with him and we're just like, yeah, yeah, we get it. This is an insane Uh, game to be a goalie in. And so um, it's a couple minutes left in the intermission and then everyone's leaving and it's just me, Zach, and then one of the coaches. And I'm going to put my neck guard on, my soaked neck guard at this point. And out of nowhere, because I, I swear my mind was fine, but I knew I was, I know I was tired and probably dehydrated, but I just start going into like a panic attack where my body starts shaking pretty vigorously. And I've, I've had a few panic attacks in my life, but this, this felt a lot like that. And I was kind of confused. I was like, why is this happening? And I think maybe my mind started racing because my body was racing. And where my mind went was, can I keep this performance up for this last period? I knew what I was doing was pretty special at this point, And I just was hoping I wouldn't crack because it would make sense for a goalie to at some point in this last period to, to really um, kind of just let in everything at one point because mm-hmm. the fatigue catches up. And I really wanted to have just this complete game, even if it was going to be double digit uh, goals allowed. I wanted to have this for me. And I was really nervous that I wasn't going to. Mm-hmm. And my coach who was there just, he doesn't, he probably doesn't, didn't know how powerful this would be for me, but he just said, Hey, just take it, just take a breath. And that was huge for me because this is me the master's candidate in sports psychology who's preaching this to other other performers and i've been practicing my breathing at this point for like a year so once he reminded me yeah just focus on the breath this was so easy to get myself out of this state because i'd been doing this all season i had been doing this to learn about how this works i knew how breathing could help me during this panic attack because um focusing on the exhale works the parasympathetic part of the nervous system which is going to be that calming part and lowers your heart rate, lowers your muscle tension. So I knew, I knew the science behind it. I knew it, it should be working, which helped me get out of that funk. It was like 20 seconds of me panicking for what I thought was no reason, but ended up being some reasons. Mm-hmm. And I just got it myself out of it pretty quickly. And yes, yeah, so, and I don't think it would have been that easy if I hadn't not only learned why breathing was effective, but had been practicing it. I, I talked to a lot of my clients about you do not want to wait to start practicing the mental skills that you learn to control your nerves and improve your focus. Because imagine, imagine I talk to you about using breath work to manage nerves. And then you say, okay, cool. That's a good tool that I have now, but you don't practice it until your team is in a big shootout. You're the third shooter. And depending on if you score or not is going to depend on, or will uh, change the outcome of this game. Mm-hmm. And that's when you might want to be like, okay, let me focus on my breathing that's just a recipe for disaster because you've yeah. never practiced yeah. it. You're not used to exactly. it. Exactly. Yep. So if I, in this panic attack was like, Oh, I'll just uh, do what that textbook said and focus on my breathing. I, I wouldn't yep. know what numbers work for me. Like I like three seconds in five seconds out where some people like different ratios. Some people like to hold it. I don't. And I only learned what I liked by doing it, by practicing it when I wasn't necessarily having a panic attack, but maybe just a bit of butterflies and 
so that was big. And then, so yeah, I came out in second period or the third period and it was great. The, um, ending score was nine to zero. And I think the shots were like, yeah, at about a hundred, I heard one Oh seven from someone 96 from another. So I'll take the, uh, over 900 save percentage though. That's, that's what I'll take. Yeah. Um, but, that's and then, unreal. so that guy, so that guy in the hallway, we're coming back to this part of the story. Yeah. I'm obviously quite sore after this game and I'm just looking for any reason to stay in bed and um, the next morning and I'm on Instagram and I'm like just looking at UCLA's Instagram hockey page and be like, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, did they say anything about me? Yeah. And I think they had reposted a post from the guy that I saw in the hallway and he didn't know who I was. He didn't, he didn't tag me at all, but he was saying that he saw a player. He saw me with my hand go out there and get absolutely clobbered by such a good team. And then uh, he talked about how I just took off my glove at the end and just shook hands with everyone. And he was just kind of like saying how, um, how impressed he was essentially. And I messaged him to thank him and he ended up having some connections at the NHL network. And yeah, his name's Rick Scott, by the way, he does, he has some posts on, on hockey and he works with UCLA's team, but um, great guy. He worked so hard for me to like get that spot. And that was again, a dream come true, but um, just a crazy, just a crazy story that um, I really owe a lot of my sports psychology education to because I don't think I could have performed that well for that long um, if I hadn't learned all these tools in my in my education. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, congratulations to you on that. That really is awesome. And like you were saying that I don't I'm trying to think of if I've ever aside from, I guess, like might hockey anyone like where I can think of a time where anyone's faced that many shots, <laughs> yeah, maybe like squirts, but like, you know, like where everyone's just like skating around, everyone's just shooting, but like, I can't think of a time where anyone's faced that many shots. Yeah. That's, and... inc- that's truly a, an incredible thing to like be able to say that you did and faced and stopped that many. And I, I, that's just like a really neat um, thing that you have under your belt there. Yeah, I, I was so wired after this game that so I live kind of far away from uh, the team. So I had like an hour drive home back and I, I was just had to call a friend just to talk about it. And I was totally wired on the drive. I didn't even end up sleeping that night until like six or seven a.m. Just because my brain was just going over that yeah. game constantly. Oh, and I mean, by far, just the peak of my hockey career. It was just so much fun. And this was actually at home. So like we had a lot of fans just watching our watching us get demolished. But it was at least, uh, at least uh, they saw something, something crazy. Um, I'd never seen a scoreboard or like a shot clock get up into like the nineties and stuff. So every time I was looking up, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I'd be shocked if I ever had ever experienced like that. Um, that is pretty impressive, but you also had an injury as well too. If you want to dive into that and talk about that experience. Um, yeah. So and- I've had a segue into like the sports psychology stuff because I feel like it all ties in together with how that that education piece has helped you kind of, you know, um, manage all, all of this. Yeah. So I had a rough injury back in 2017 where I tore my labrum in my shoulder and what made it definitely rougher was that it was misdiagnosed. Partly, I think it was kind of my fault just because I went in for an x-ray, but the labrum tear didn't show up on it. So I probably should have gotten an MRI sooner after realizing it wasn't getting better, but I ended up getting surgery for it. And it just hasn't felt the same since it, it tenses up in really intensely randomly when I'm still to this day. Yeah. Um, It's gotten less and less. Uh, It was really bad. Like the year after where some games I would literally just pick, like hold my glove arm up in a certain angle and I, and it would be like toast. 
And this, this happened a lot in my first season with Fullerton actually. Um, so that injury was rough, but going through that rehab of like six to eight months and it's still not being great after that, it really made me feel for all the people that go through injuries. Cause I, I know injuries suck because I ran cross country in high school and that, that, that sport is filled with injuries. Mm-hmm. And so I missed so many races because of just random stuff going on with my leg, but just the plight of rehab, rehabbing a rough injury, especially when you don't know if the outcome is going to be great. It uh, made me more compassionate for all the athletes that have to go through this because this is unfortunately ubiquitous across all sports. You just can't get away from injuries. And I think it's really important to not just kind of waste your time while you're injured and just say, okay, I'm just going to wait till I recover to focus on my sport. Because I think when you're injured, it's the best opportunity to focus on mental skills and sports psychology and cultivating a high performance mindset. And I'm actually focusing my thesis on how to use mental skills during injury rehab for ice hockey players. So definitely have some good tidbits there. And I just think injury is such an important part for people to focus on. And it's dangerous too, because people understandably can get hooked on the pain meds. Um, They can get hooked on drugs in general because of the boredom that might go into rehab. And you have just so much turmoil um, with the threat to your identity as an athlete of the anxiety of wondering if you could be at your pre-injury levels when you do return. Uh, Maybe you can't even play hockey again or whatever sport you're playing. So yeah, I have a real passion for just helping people through injuries. Yeah. So your thesis, it's um, you were saying in our, in our emails back and forth that it's a workbook um, regarding mental skills and and managing that through injury. Um, Talk about that, the kind of workbook that it is that you're writing and talk about some of the mental skills that, um, that you are, um, you know, I guess researching and talking about in this thesis that you feel apply to, to injury and rehab. I feel like, yeah. like I agree with you that they are great opportunities, but um, you have to just, just see them that way. Um, yeah. And, exactly. and, and use them as that opportunity. But I feel like a lot of times um, we're all guilty of it. We just, it's an unfortunate thing and it can kind of bring it down into a negative, into a negative space. But um, if you can see it as an opportunity for growth, then it, it, it truly can be uh, a great opportunity there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it is a workbook where there's a lot of good books out there where they might educate you on things you can do during injury rehab, or it might tell you about actual exercises, but I wanted it to be even more personalized for the players that I'll give this to. So they can write in their own recovery mantras that they're going to use. Uh, They can write in their goals that they're going to go over with their physical therapist in their sessions. So it's not necessarily just reading. It's also doing. So um, I'll talk about imagery on how to use that to and you can use imagery in so many ways for injury rehab, but one way for pain management is if you're experiencing a lot of pain, you can focus intently on that pain and using imagery. So closing your eyes and assigning this pain, a shape or a color, and this might be like a dark color or a jagged shape and slowly morphing that image in your mind to something that represents health. So maybe a lighter color or just a more round, healthier looking shape can actually be ways to manage pain. And then I love using imagery as a way to prepare for returning to hockey. So let's say maybe you got injured because you're trying to skate hard and negate an icing and you end up catching an edge and you go into the boards and you break your ankle, something like that. Next time you skate really hard at that area of the ice, you might be really nervous about falling again. So now you're distracted. 
You're not focusing on cues that are actually going to keep you from falling. You're focusing mm-hmm. on what you don't want to happen. And if you're focusing, and if you focus on what you don't want to happen, it might happen um, even more so because of the ironic processes concept where, you know, I tell you not to think of a pink elephant, your mind is going to go there automatically. Yep. So using imagery to experience that, that rush. So I'm rushing to negate this icing. And I'm just doing it in my mind. So I know I'm safe. I don't need to feel like I'm going to get injured or it's possible. Even though I might have some, my heart might be racing because it's bringing up a lot of memories from when this did happen. It's a way to refamiliarize yourself with that moment that you're probably going to find yourself in again. And it's going to be a lot more conducive to your mindset and recovery if you can try and experience that before it's going on in a game. So if you can re- experience that in your mind it won't be as shocking and as anxiety inducing when it is a game or a practice and you're actually at risk of it getting injured. So that's one way to use imagery um, as a way to help yourself be more comfortable returning to your sport after um, incurring an injury. And I can also talk about self-talk that we were kind of talking about earlier, how, how you talk to yourself is so important. We have like 70,000 thoughts a day. And mm-hmm. if that has that has poor quality in those thoughts, you can imagine how it's going to affect your mindset. And I'm a big believer that how you think is going to affect your behavior. And that's going to, it also affects your emotions. So the self-talk is so critical to, to be able to rein in when you notice it being ineffective. I like to use the words ineffective or dysfunctional um, to describe self-talk that you want to pay attention to and change. Mm. So this could be when you're being extremely negative and saying that there's there's no way that I'm going to recover. This is impossible. I'm, I'm never going to feel the same as I did. The best strategies that I like for when you're thinking like this, well, f- for one, you have to build awareness. Awareness, I will never stop talking about because it's so important. But building awareness of when you're having this ineffective self-talk. And one way you can do this is like having paper clips or pennies uh, in your pocket. Or I use an example in the workbook is you have a lot of pucks in your room. And every time you notice, okay, I'm having really ineffective self-talk right now. This is bad for my mindset. It's not helping me recover better. It's just something that I want to change. You can move one of those paper clips to your other pocket, or you can shoot a puck to the other side of the room. And if you do this for just an hour where you're trying to be aware of every time you talk to yourself in a poor way and you transfer like a puck to the other side of the room or like the paper clips from one pocket, you're building awareness of, okay, wow, there's, there's already eight and it's been... 20 minutes. This is going to help you be aware when you're not keeping track. So just in life outside of uh, hockey and injury rehab, you can notice yourself talk more effectively because you're training your brain to be aware of it. And then the second part of this, which is crucial is the reframing aspect. So if I'm telling myself this recovery is going to be impossible, there's just, I don't, there's just no way I'm going to play hockey again. You can reframe it as recovery is going to be really challenging. And that already can be such a relief to people because challenging and impossible are really different. Challenging is I'm going to have to work hard to make this happen. Whereas impossible is I have no say in this. I'm not, I'm not an agent of my destination or uh, my destiny essentially. So having agency where you have control is going to be so important for actually fostering adherence to your exercise program that your physical therapist prescribes So when you think it's impossible, that could be a quick road to having no motivation to actually do your exercises because you say, what's the point? What's the point of doing them today? It's not doing Mm -hmm. anything. 
So those are two examples that I think are really important um, from the workbook. And yeah, and there's an educational component to it. And then there's also a component of how can you use this when you're back playing? Because a lot of players might think by reading this workbook or just using mental skills for injury rehab, they might think it's great for the injury rehab, but then they get back to playing and they just go back to what they were doing before not using the new skills they learned, but using imagery to prepare for negating and icing and skating really hard. You can use imagery in the same way where I have to prepare for a penalty kill. Let me use imagery to imagine what that's like, where my positioning is best on the ice. And basically you're doing the same thing where you're experiencing it before you have to get out there and maybe experience any shock. And you're basically just prepared more than you were Mm -hmm. if you hadn't um, deployed some imagery uh, techniques. Interesting. And it's interesting what you talk about with the self-talk and I want to bring something up and kind of ask you if you've heard of something like this or have studied it um, or seen it in your studies. Um, And that's in this book called Chatter by Ethan Cross. And he talks about talking to yourself by using your name or saying you. And it's with the disassociation of what you're going through and, and it helps with reframing your outlook or your perspective on what that is. So if you're feeling anxious before a game, I'd be like, hey, Danny, relax, dude. You got this. Or, hey, you, you're, you're good. Don't worry about it. Like, just kind of framing it that way as opposed to, like, saying, I'm not anxious. No, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm not anxious here. Like, it's, it's a way of disassociating um, with those feelings and looking at it from a different view viewpoint yeah. or different perspective. Is that something that you're familiar with or have studied or have heard of even? Yeah, I haven't studied it, but I've heard of it. And when when I heard of this, I think, I don't even know where I heard this, but they were saying that it also acts as a way of, you can get into this mindset of you're talking to a friend, which is when we yep. give the best yep. advice and we have mm-hmm. the best mindset when we're talking to a friend. And when I, when I can just turn my brain into, okay, Gabe, here's how we should think about this. You're kind of getting into that mindset of, okay, I'm actually going to be kind to myself because that's how I would talk to a friend. Now, when we're in our own heads, we're so cruel to each other for some reason, we're just always go to the negative. So I think using your name like that, by saying like you're talking to yourself and using that name, it's a way to trigger that kind of mindset, which is just going to be healthier in general. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he talks about, which is a great thing. He goes, you don't even have to say this out loud to, like, to yourself. You can even say it in your head. And by doing that, it still has the exact same effect. Yes, absolutely. Um, which is great because it's like, if you're feeling anxious and you're on a subway train with a hundred people, it's like, imagine hearing someone saying, Danny, you're fine. And it's like talking to yourself or whatever. Yeah. It's like, so it, it's good that this, this is something you could do privately on your own and, and not have to feel like you can't utilize this tool all the time or, or whenever you feel like you really need it. Exactly. Yeah. They call it covert and overt self-talk and it both okay. work. It's about, it's more about, okay, let me find out what works for me. And mm-hmm. I've actually, so my very first game in, in college, I was just so nervous and I had, so Braden Holtby is like the first goalie that I saw sports psychology in action when he would flip up his water bottle and watch one of the droplets fall to the ice. Mm-hmm. So it was something small for his eyes to focus on in between whistles just to maintain that concentration. Yep. And after doing some more research, I, I saw a mantra that he, uh, him and his sports psychologist came up with where he's talking about how there is no future, there is no past, only the present, and I'm going to make it last. And I read that and was just on board. So I have come up with my own mantras since, but I used his verbatim during that first game. I, I'm not joking. I, I said it 
at least 50 times throughout the game. Every time I was distracted of, oh my God, what's, what are these people thinking about me? Or I hope I don't let in the next goal because we have a lead. And I hope my coach is happy with me, like seeing me play for the first time. I would just cut off those thoughts and repeat that self, repeat that mantra to myself. Because when you're doing that, it literally anchors you to the present, which is why I think mm -hmm. mantras are so unbelievably powerful. And if, so a mantra that I also used towards the end of the season actually is just saying challenge, patience, and um, basically just challenge and patience was what I wanted to get at. And then staying on my angle. And I would just boil that down to challenge patience on your angle. And anytime I caught myself thinking about that last goal that I let in, like how, why didn't I put my stick down? I could have let it in or I could have stopped it. Or I'm thinking of the future of, I hope this gets to overtime. I hope my team can get a goal. And now I'm making it, uh, making the stakes higher on myself. I can bring myself back to this mantra because one, it's going to focus me on the present, but two, it's making me more confident just by saying this because it's folks, it's, it's teaching me or telling me to focus on three things that I know I play so much better at when I'm focusing on them. So when I'm coming mm -hmm. out of my crease, waiting for them to shoot before I make a move and I'm actually on my angle, when I'm doing those three things, I feel so much more confident. So when I'm stuck in the past or future, not only does the mantra bring me to the present, but it brings me to confidence inducing thoughts because I'm literally reminding myself of how to play goalie the best I can possible. So that's uh, the mantra is just one version of self-talk, obviously. And you can hear how I'm talking about it is that just the self-talk is so important. And the mantra is one of my favorite tools because you can always change it um, based on what you need for that day. Like that one was a more skill-based mantra, but sometimes I might need a, a focus mantra, like the one with Holby. Mm -hmm. So not focusing on the past or future, just the present. And so, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of my favorite, uh, favorite tools that I've used a lot in hockey. Well, that's great that you talk about it, their confidence-inducing things and their confidence-inducing tools. Um, one thing I, I mentioned on a previous podcast episode was a quote that I saw, um, and it's by Gino Ariema, which I believe is a UConn um, basketball coach, or he's a coach at UConn. And he says, your physical ability is not nearly as important as your confidence level and where your head is. So it just goes to show that all the physical work that we put into ourselves and into our bodies, into our craft, they're great, but they're nothing if you don't have the mental side of things intact. And by implementing um, these tools that you talk about and, and talking to yourself in these ways and using the mantras and stuff like that, like, they really can help with um, giving yourself confidence and, and allowing yourself to think in the right frame of mind, which will and then be a piece of the puzzle that is now you know helping the whole machine work and operate at, at its best level that you've been training it to do. Um, yeah. But it's, it's important. And I like to stress how important it is that the mental side of things is, in my opinion, I think the degree is the most important thing because without it, the physical cannot, you know, come to fruition. All that, all that work cannot, um, you know, come out and, and do what it needs to do. Yeah. And every athlete grows up focusing basically only on the physical part where they're doing line rushes in practice, they're working on their shot, they're skating, but they're not doing imagery or relaxation techniques at 10 years old. That's just not common. And that's why I think, especially at the pros, like the college and NHL level, there are diminishing returns for the physical training that a lot of these players do, where you might be practicing a skill at one age and you're seeing a lot of improvement in your skating, for example, over like two years of maybe you're working with a new coach. But at a certain point, when you're in the pros, 
working on your shot is it's you're or you're already so trained and so good at that shot that you're 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 practicing for all these hours every week just to get like 0.1% better whereas if you focused on another area of training that you've maybe have neglected all your career like the mind how to mm-hmm. train your brain to to manage nerves and improve focus and concentration confidence you're going to see a lot more benefits in your game i think and I think even with the all the physical training these athletes do that, like you said, the mental game holds them back because they haven't trained on how to um, manage their focus effectively. Mm-hmm. They've just focused on having a really good shot and really good skating. So it's good to see. And this is why I love this podcast, because it's just another vessel for people to be exposed to the beauty of mental skills and, and training your brain rather than just focusing on brute strength to get better. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. But the thing I, I was just thinking about now, too, is that mm-hmm. I think the hardest part with why this stuff is so difficult to get into people's heads and, and get people to buy in with is because with physical training and with strength and conditioning, people can go into a gym and work out or with being on the ice or working at your craft in the court, the field, whatever the case is, you could do these exercises physically and you can see that improvement. You know, in the weight room, you can track numbers and, and things yeah. like that. With the mental side of it, there are benefits and they do help, but it's just hard to see them actually materialize in the way that you can with a shot or yeah. a skating technique. You know, you can get footage of your skating. Yeah. Um, you can get numbers on a, on a sheet that say you've improved in, in a bench press or a squat. So I think that's why it's a little bit harder, but like it's important to state the facts and talk about these things and how breath work can improve gray matter in the brain which has so many positive effects for health and longevity and brain health and um, overall life performance so i think that's my probably i'm curious your opinion on it too but i think that's my my opinion on why it's kind of difficult to get people to buy in because there's no like tangible like response that we get when we work on our brain and and our our mental state yeah how i think of that is is feedback when i'm trying a new technique with a slap shot, I'm going to get feedback instantly because I'm going to see what happens with that shot. But when I work on my breath work 10 minutes before a game, it's not going to be obvious of how I don't have obvious straightforward feedback of how that's going to impact me, whether it's positive or negative. Um, So that's a big deal is that not seeing it. This stuff takes time to work. Like I said, you can't just try uh practice breathing for a day and then be at a be in a really intense shootout and think it's gonna get you out of these nerves you got to practice it a lot to actually feel um the change but i'll never forget what one of my advisors said early on in my program is that um mental skills they aren't that sexy practicing imagery doing this breath work using doing the self-talk it's not as cool as going to the gym and pumping iron or going on the rink and taking some sick shots trying to hit the corners it's just not as fun. I, I, I'll admit it. Like it's not as fun, but it's so effective. And what I think is the, one of the most important parts is that these skills are yes, great for hockey performance, but it's great for life outside of hockey too. Like mm-hmm. taking exams, interviewing for jobs, managing interpersonal relationships, being able to ask yourself, like by training yourself, talk and asking yourself, can I, is there any other perspective that I'm not seeing from this? That is obviously going to have great benefits for life outside of hockey. It's not, it's not just going to, going to help you inside of hockey where you might be able to look at your coach benching you and maybe you can get yourself out of that funk. No, these skills translate so well to life outside of hockey, which is 
just the more reason. I, I guess I'm saying that because people might be deterred because they don't know about the feedback and how if it's actually mm-hmm. helping them. But I, I'd say the extra emphasis I could I could give is that this stuff is not just for hockey performance. It's for performing as a husband, as a wife, as a uh, an, as an employee, even at your work. It's it's everything. Oh yeah, it just I couldn't agree more. We had a sports like on previous episode, Ted Monik, he talked about this goalie he was working with actually. Um, goalie is the biggest head cases I get. I don't know. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I don't know. I should have. I should think I should have been a goalie. I don't know. I feel like I would have fit right <laughs> in. But no, um, he talked about this goalie he was working with, and um, the girlfriend came up to him one day uh, at a game and said, "Hey, just want to thank you for all that you're doing. He's way more tolerable at home now." Yeah, uh, which is just kind of funny how your on ice performance improves, or if it's whatever work you're doing, that'll improve. But just you know, the interpersonal skills and being a better person overall, um, those things improve. And who doesn't want to you know go through life easier and be better at it, right? So, yeah, um, exactly. But I, I'm happy that you brought up that point. Yeah, and also that episode with Ted Monic was incredible. That's probably my favorite one. And I could, I think I listened to that on the way to one of my games and it oh, got cool. me in the perfect, perfect mindset. And yeah, I highly recommend that, that episode to anybody uh, else. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, he, he's awesome. And he, he, um, he really did a great job explaining like kind of a, a lot of things that we're talking about and, you know, um, another great episode for, you know, resources and stuff. So I appreciate you, uh, giving us a shout out there, but, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I want to go into uh, goal setting and the relaxation techniques that, uh, that yeah. you talked about. So um, I think goal setting is important, um, but I think it's talked about and it's important that people do it. And we always talk about, hey, it's important to have goals, but specifically um, how that can be utilized for people, how they can implement it. And uh, what are your kind of suggestions and the best way of going about goal setting? So in the context of injury rehab, everybody usually comes into this with saying, okay, I want to, I want to recover completely and get back on the ice within X amount of days. And hopefully, hopefully that timetable is actually worked out with the healthcare provider. So like, you're not just basing mm-hmm. it off of other people's injuries or whatever, but it can be really daunting if your only goal is, is going to come to fruition six months down the line and there's nothing to break it up. So I talk about in the workbook about breaking the goals up into, so you have your recovery goal of getting back on the ice in time for playoffs, let's say, for example, that's your big recovery goal. And then you're going to have phase goals. So there are three phases of rehabilitation. It's the onset of injury. So this is like when you break your leg and you're dealing with that pain and swelling and you can't really do anything for a bit. Mm -hmm. Then phase two, you'll move into actually rehabbing the injury. So you're going in, getting soft tissue work. You're doing your exercises at home. You're slowly building up that, uh, that strength again. And then phase three is returning to play. So breaking up your goals into each phase, like, okay, what's my goal for phase one? And what am I basically breaking it up to how am I going to handle this phase rather than the whole, the whole journey of rehab. And if you can, I think the daily goals are the most important. So my daily goals for phase one might be use healing imagery for 20 minutes a day. Um, do any type of exercise that my doctor might prescribe me that I can, that might be okay. So like breaking a leg, maybe you can still do the arm bike, get some kind of exercise in there, but, and then maybe you want to meditate sometime throughout the day, but basically having a goal for each day, that's going to get you to that next phase is really important because that's just, that's maybe like four to six weeks that you're focusing on now. And these goals become more 
powerful when they're in that shorter period of time because you feel like everything you do leading up to then has more influence over your over your recovery and is more powerful. So having those three goals, so you have uh, recovery goals, your phase goals, and then and daily goals. And then lastly, having lifestyle goals. So while you're injured, do you really want to be putting crap into your body and using that kind of food and uh, that kind of food to recover your body as it's trying to heal your broken leg? Like maybe mm-hmm. you want to have the lifestyle goal of, okay, I'm not able to exercise as much. What I eat matters for how my recovery goes. I'm going to have the goal of eating you know, certain X amount of vegetables, uh, fruits, maybe, um, just more than you were before the injury. So lifestyle goal is getting enough sleep, obviously, cause there's a lot of repairs that goes to our body while we're sleeping. So that's kind of how I talk about goal setting in the workbook of how we can break it up. And I also love, love the idea of making goals with your physical therapist. So saying like, Hey, I'd like to be back on the ice by this date. Do you think that's reasonable? Is that, is that okay? Like, is that ridiculous to even consider? Or do you think I should shoot for something quicker? Being able to collaborate with your physical therapist or just healthcare provider is going to keep you on track for setting healthy goals because you don't want to set a goal that's so impossible because then you're going to lose motivation when you realize there's no way you meet that goal. Like, getting back on the ice one month after tearing your ACL. It's like, no, you, you can't set that goal. There's, there's mm-hmm. obviously issues there. And then also saying, okay, my goal is to get back on the ice in two years where all you did was like break a finger. That's way too easy. This goal is not going to help you um, be any more effective. So it's about having challenging, but realistic goals. And I think collaborating with uh, sport medicine professionals is going to be so important in that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm big on collaborating with the healthcare uh, professional just because they know your body they know you well and they can they can see this and and just know that you're super motivated to recover effectively and that's gonna that's gonna hopefully um, seep into their work with you as well and so I think goal setting is something that's very much overlooked especially in injury rehab one of the most important mindsets I think to have as an athlete who is recovering from injury is looking at their rehabilitation as their performance. So it might be an Olympian going for gold who gets injured. Their gold medal performance is not going to be at the Olympics necessarily. Their gold medal performance is in the rehab room uh, every time they have an appointment and they have to endure soft tissue massages or really uncomfortable exercises. That's their performance. And a lot of athletes might just think they're not an athlete for six months while they're injured, but you can still have an athlete mindset during injury. You could still find ways to improve your game, even though it's not getting on the ice. It might be watching more film of yourself, uh, maybe studying other opponents a bit more, or just kind of analyzing your game and what you can work on, being more familiar with imagery. There's so much potential. Mm-hmm. And being able to keep that athlete mindset into injury rehab is just so, so big, so good. Yeah, I think uh, I like the goal setting with, you know, the, with your provider or someone that you're working with to help with the rehabilitation, but having the realistic goals. But I think those are the two biggest things. Um, you don't want to set something too far, too far, uh, too high or whatever the case is, because then it becomes unrealistic and then you don't achieve, but, you know, finding that happy medium, but also working with somebody, um, you know, who's going to say, Hey, this is what I want to be on the ice this is what I'm going to be back to competition. Is this possible? And then working together um, with getting there. I think those are both 
pretty pretty huge and, and can be very um they can be you know help you be more inspired to getting back and, and putting in that extra work to to get where you need to go because I know suffering an injury can set you back uh, physically obviously but also set you back mentally and think that you're going to be so behind, so far behind the eight ball but it, it's not the case yeah and um, one last point on the goal setting is that mm-hmm. I think it's also crucial that people are comfortable coming back to their goals and adjusting them if they need them. Okay. Yeah. So, so like saying like, Oh, I'm way ahead of schedule. I can set a more lofty goal so I can have something yep. actually challenging to face or to go after. Or if I'm realizing this is taking way longer than I expected. Okay. Let's move this goal because this original goal is not serving me. And, and I also think degree of completion is really important rather than absolute completion. So like, I, I like, I use the example in the workbook of let's say you had a goal to to get 50 points this season and if you got 48 points are you gonna like just be super mad that you didn't achieve your goal and think of yourself as a failure no you were right there like you did a lot of good things on your way to there so focusing on the degree of completion of your goals so like if i have my daily goals and i have to do five things every day and one day i only get to four of them i don't need to beat myself up like i can hope i can hope that i'm gonna get back on track tomorrow but it's just because I technically didn't complete my daily goals for today doesn't need to, I, doesn't mean I need to get into this negative self-talk, this ineffective mm-hmm. self-talk. So um, being comfortable with adjusting your goals and looking at them as degree of completion rather than absolute completion is, are also mm-hmm. two tips I'd give on honestly, just goal setting in general. I love that. Yeah. I love the fact of revisiting goals. I think that's super important. I think you know, things change and, you know, we do end up achieving things quicker than, than we expect and being able to go for loftier um, ones and being able to just reevaluate, I think is huge. Um, we've talked about a lot here um, and I have a list of a couple notes that we haven't really touched on that I want to before, yeah. before I let you go here, if you have some time, but yeah, I definitely want to talk about some of the things that we, you know, um, spoke about earlier in, in our email chain, that's developing routines and journaling and reflecting to manage anxiety and facilitate confidence. So before we get in, into it, I, I want to discuss uh, journaling and, and reflecting and to manage anxiety. I'm happy that you brought that up because that's something that is, I've said it a million times on here before, but it's a reoccurring thing that we've talked about, um, journaling and how important it is. Um, and it doesn't be a lot, it doesn't be anything really uh, strenuous. You don't have to sit down and journal for hours, but um, just sitting down, writing your thoughts, putting pen to paper, getting them out of your head and seeing something tangible. I think it, it helps. And a lot of people that we've had on, a lot of the guests we've had on have, have talked about it and say it's benefited them and that it does have a positive effect. So yeah, developing routines and, and, and journaling and reflecting to manage anxiety. It's uh, let's talk about those two things and get, kind of get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So we'll go into journaling for a bit. I like to use the example of, do you know, these like bingo ball machines where like you're spinning them and then you can stop it and reach, you can open the hatch and reach out and take one of them out. Kind of, I don't know. I feel like it's I'm, like, I it's like an old have... thing. It's like an old thing. And I don't know why, but it just stuck in my mind because okay. how I picture what journaling does for me is when I'm swirling all these balls in this cage, all those bingo balls are like thoughts in my brain. Oh, yeah. 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 I, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got I, it. I actually, I have one of those games. I'm like, now remembering yeah and then like sits in a little like cradle and it comes yeah, yeah i know exactly so what you're talking exactly about. Yep. so how i conceptualize it for myself is when i'm journaling about whatever's just on my mind where it's clearly just popping into my brain all the time and it's important to me once i write it down i'm putting language to it 
I'm working it out for myself, just in my own brain, rather than letting it stay in that cage going crazy. As I'm doing that, as I'm doing that journaling, I'm essentially opening that hatch and taking a ball out and setting it aside and being like, okay, I, I, I dealt with that thought. Like I've, I've managed something. I've done something with that thought and it's not going to stay in this cage of swirling bingo balls because I'm, I'm doing something about it. I'm kind of working it out for myself, like I said. And, and, um, I think I mentioned it earlier, but as you, as you just write about your thoughts, it's downloading it on to that paper or computer and it's less likely to pop up into your brain. So I'll use journaling for that when I'm having anxiety, when I'm just kind of wanting to work out what I'm thinking. So like, if I'm just nervous before a game, I'll free, free flow, no parameters, just write about why I might be nervous, what I could do for myself. It's nothing that I'm going to think about coming back to and reading. And then the other way of using journaling is making a habit out of after games and practices, writing about your performance. So having a feedback system of, uh, in our program at Fullerton, we like, we like this three, two, one system where you write about three things that you think you did well, two things that you think could be improved. And then one thing that you can do to start improving those. So basically if I were to get into this habit, this system of I'm going to journal after every practice and after every game, I'm going to write about what I think went well. One, this is going to give me something to look back on when I'm not feeling confident. And I can be like, oh yeah, I was feeling really good about this stuff for a couple of weeks. So let me focus on that. Because as I focus on what I'm good at, I'm going to feel more confident. And then two, having the system of reflecting on what didn't go as well. Like maybe my face-offs were really bad this game. I should, maybe I can use this to focus on practice next week. Um, maybe my, I kept dropping my glove hand in this game and that's just going to be something I focus on for the next game, the next night, having this system of evaluation is going back to what I was talking about, how you're being your best coach. You're taking the initiative to talk about what you're doing well and talk about what you want to train on. And mm. I, I think like journaling, that a lot. Yeah. It's, I, I loved having, I think, so Ken Revisa, a great character in sports psychology field was teaching at Fullerton he loves the idea of coming to practice with a mission. So rather than just kind of coming to practice and thinking, okay, I'm just going to get better at hockey because I'm practicing. No, I'm coming to practice and being like, okay, in my downtime, I'm going to work on playing the puck more. Um, on these drills, I'm going to focus on repeating my mantra before the drill. I'm going to focus on being on my angle perfectly, having something to work on and having some kind of journaling reflecting system can help you be that kind of athlete where you're coming to practice with a mission, with a goal in mind, rather than just kind of coasting and going through the motions. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, journaling, so much potential. I like that the, the three, two, one is like, it helps you break things up into piecemeal when you, when you talk about it like that. More so the two and the one, just cause I always think about like the, the three, like it, it's great, but I always think about like the improvement side of things. I think everyone thinks about the improvement side of things. Yeah. So I think the three is awesome just to start it off positively, recognizing three things you did well. Great. I think that's awesome to get that, get that out there. Mm -hmm. But the two and the one, it's okay. What are the things you want to improve on? But then what's that one actionable step you're going to take to improve that? Instead of just dwelling on a bad practice and saying, oh, it was bad today. And then you just go home, think about it and sit, sit on it for hours until the next day. It's like, okay, no, this is an actionable thing you can take. It's like, hey, these are two things I want to improve. And this is the one way I'm going to go about improving either one of them or whatever, you know, whatever the case is like, this is the actionable step I'm going to take to improving um, whatever that is. So I think that that's a great way to, I guess, simplify 
and make yourself feel like you're in more of a control, I guess is the word. Exactly. That's where I was going to go with that. And I think anytime we can feel like we have more control than we thought is going to be good for us. It's going to, because anxiety is bred out of not having control over an outcome. So when I'd experience anxiety for my games, it's because I don't know how this is going to go. But if I can turn some of that into, okay, well, I can control some of my performance by focusing on my preparation before the game, focusing on my attitude before and during the game, and then focusing on my effort. It, these are things that, you know, you still might have a poor performance, but you at least are focusing on something. And I love how the brain cannot focus on two things at once, because it means if you're focusing on something adaptive and functional, like a mantra or like your breath work, it means you're basically not even letting it focus on, focus on negatives and distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, these distractions are going to pop up still. It's not a complete solution, but it's just I, getting 1% better is basically my motto where if you're getting 1% better by doing something, that means you're not getting worse. And 1% can add up to a lot of gains after a while. So if you can Marginal figure gains. out a routine. Yeah, a lot of short gains going to add up to big gains. And so, yeah, um, I just think it's such an important skill. Uh, I mean, all this is, but um, having a feedback system is really important. I've, I've, I'm in the process of like, developing a scorecard that you can use for yourself. So like having personalized scorecards of being able to check off certain boxes. And, and at the end of the day, you could basically just look at this card and, and ask yourself, okay, did I, how did I do today? And, um, yeah. and that can give you direction on the next day. Yeah, no, I like that. And we talk about marginal gains here a lot um, at Maine and how small little things, they don't seem significant when you break them down individually, but you know, over time, um, they really add up and can, you know, make a, you know, lead to a lot of success and make a, a big percentage of, of success and just taking care of that small stuff that really does pay off big dividends. Yeah. I heard of, I think it was on a podcast. Somebody was talking about an article and it was just called the mundanity of excellence. And I, okay. I don't even need to know what this article is about, but it, it huh. resonated with me so much because I think how I interpreted it at least is that being elite or being excellent isn't actually that hard. It's just you have to be so dedicated and consistent and it gets mundane because it's kind of the same stuff every day. It's a lot of mm-hmm. boring things like stretching, eating well, not going out maybe as much as you want, um, stuff like that. So I think that just feeds into the marginal marginal gain. Just make, make some progress every day and it's going to do wonders for you as, the, as you look back on each year. No, exactly. And um going off that with routines, I think routines are, are huge in that um, they all go hand, hand in hand. I think that, you know, a lot of things that I've seen recently is that motivation is kind of, it can be dodgy as far as it, you can be super motivated for a while and then not motivated for a bit. And that's normal, but it's about developing those habits, developing routines that you can always fall back on. And that's where the importance lies. And that's where, you know, the excellence is bred. Because like I said, that, that motivation, it'll, it'll be there and you'll be fired up and you'll attack something by storm, you know, for a couple hours, but then it kind of fades away. But if you can develop a routine, develop a system where I have to do this, 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 and this, and maybe get specific as time blocking when you want to do this, 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 and this, and those important things that you have to do each and every day, it's just, you wake up, do it, go to bed, repeat, 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 and then you look back over time, you didn't really need motivation to do any of it. You were just kind of doing it on autopilot. 
And um, that's kind of where those habits can form, can form great, great results. Yeah. And I think people might get into a routine like that and stop a week in or two, two weeks in, but it actually takes, I've seen three weeks or six weeks for that to really get like lodged in your brain as, okay, this is normal. This is what we, this is what we're wired to do now every day. So that's just for the people who might try a new routine and mm-hmm. hate it for the first week or two. It, it, it gets better. Your brain eventually adapts, like waking up early. I think a lot of people that wake up early might say they, it was impossible in the beginning and now it's like, they can't stop doing it. So yeah, um, just kind of sticking with it through that, that tough window is uh, going to be good in, in nailing down that routine. And you feel your, that routines are beneficial. I think that it's important to also be able to adjust and be willing to, you know, make do with whatever you're presented with as well. I think that's important. I feel like there's always the other idea that, hey, if you have a routine and all of a sudden one thing gets thrown off and you can't do anything because your routine's thrown off and that's not yeah. productive either. But um, do you feel that routines are beneficial and also having that adaptability as well? Yeah, I've been bad about routines outside of hockey. Like, I feel like I could be better about like, just meditating in the morning every time or just getting up and going to the gym in the morning, but it's kind of random. However, in game, I've been much better about my routines. And what I heard recently that I think is important when talking about routines is that it's not necessarily about what your routine is doing, like Colby squirting up the water bottle. Um, if, it, if his routine is doing that twice, it's not completely on doing it twice every time. It's about the end state that this routine leaves him at. So does this routine leave him more focused than he was before he did the water bottle squirt? That's basically his goal is that he can lock in that, that uh, tracking, that vision. And if he feels fine after one squirt of his water bottle, you don't really need to do that second one, even though that's his routine, because his end state is where he wanted to be already. So mm-hmm. you could also look at this as like a, um, a basketball player taking free throws. Maybe they like to take just one diaphragmatic breath before the shot. However, maybe during one free throw, they're still they still feel tense. They're still feeling nervous and they have time to just take another breath. So they do, even though that's not part of their routine, it's not what they do every single time. It's about measuring where you're, where you want to be at the end of your routine and saying, okay, am I there because of my routine? Because that's already in place. Am I used to it? Or like you said, do I need to adjust this at all and add in another breath or um, maybe use a focal point now or add in a mantra, Mm -hmm. something like that, just anything. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I think uh, that's important. It's a matter of getting to your end state, not so much as far as the routine, but getting to where you got to go. Yeah. Um, and I think no, that's like routines, I think are one of the most fun mental skills to practice because it's fun. Like I, I had fun kind of figuring out what I was going to do for mine. Like uh, you see a lot of goalies just skate to the corner of the boards, which I love doing because I don't like to just stand still in between whistles. Like I like to just kind of move my legs. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was more about, okay, now what can I do in between? Uh, leaving my crease and coming back to my crease to maybe help me stay focused, but also give me something to focus on that won't let my brain focus on any negatives or distractions. So if I'm focused on um, some mantra that I've created, it's not focusing on, okay, I'm worried about that. The fact that I'm in the third period and it's a tight game and this is really close and any shot can, can go in on me. I'm focused on, okay, I'm, I'm being present. I'm not being in the past, not the future. And one of my favorite elements in my routine that I learned from one of my professors here at Fullerton is drawing a happy face on my glove, because at the end of the day, I am not playing hockey as a career. This is for fun. This is my passion. I'm here to have fun. And I need those reminders sometimes, especially as goalie. And so after I come to the boards, 
and I start going back towards my net, I look at my glove and look at that happy face. And it's just a reminder of you should, you want to be having fun right now. You're not, you're not in this to be insanely stressed out and to win this game. This is not that big of a deal. You're in this to have fun. And that helps me uh, drop my shoulders a little bit, feel a little like takes the weight off the game a little bit because this is not, (laughs) this is not a big deal. There's like in these college games, there's maybe a couple hundred people max in some of the games there's like 50 people like this is nothing compared to so many of the athletes that are playing in front of thousands and thousands of people but i just like as soon as i started doing that for a part of my routine i was like i love this this is never going to leave my routine and it's kind of exciting um doing things and really resonating with it and stuff clicking like that and that's why it's obviously important to practice this stuff all the time and figure out what works for you and figure out what doesn't work for you yeah, I agree. I think no matter what the level is, anyone should be having fun doing what they're doing with, especially playing hockey. It's uh, it's why we started playing and why we continue to. And um, no, I think that's well said. But no, this was uh, this was really awesome to have you on here. I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but but it was great. And I think there's a ton of information that uh, people could take from this episode. And it was it was a pleasure chatting with you and having you tell your story on this platform. And again, thank you for for being a fan of it too, as well at the start. And um, yeah, this is this is fantastic. So thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is this is a blast. I, I love talking about this stuff and especially in the hockey world. I can I can talk all day. So yeah, had a great time and thanks for having me.